Take your Bibles and turn to Luke chapter 12. I want to thank James for reading uh, the resurrection account. We're not going to specifically read the account in the sermon this morning, so the fact that we read it in the service was important to me. Thank you, James. Uh, Well done, James. Thank you to all of you who have uh, prepared for worship this morning, who have gotten your hearts right, got out of bed early, who have uh, shown up and led out in worship. And now as we turn our attention to your word, I want you to know that I've done the same, that uh, this morning was a time of thought and consideration for me, knowing uh, the significance of the day, and the day is significant. We are going to read from Luke twelve fifty seven through 59, and then we'll consider some things from there. This, these are the words of Jesus now as we finish Luke chapter 12, part 7, and the final one in our series. Yes, and why... Even of yourselves, do you not judge what is right? When you go with your adversary to the magistrate, make every effort along the way to settle with him, lest he drag you to the judge, the judge deliver you to the officer, the officer throw you into prison. I tell you, you shall not depart from there till you have paid the very last might. Now, that is a tough way to end a chapter, isn't it? Uh, not, I, I would be willing to wager there's not a lot of Easter Sunday morning sermons opening with Luke chapter 12, 57 through 59. We come to service on Easter Sunday to be uplifted, and Jesus concludes Luke chapter 12 with a warning And the warning is severe. If we have even the slightest spiritual mind to apply these things to what we know about judgment from God's word, it is very easy to see what Jesus is alluding to. Now, here's the example. When you go with your adversary to the magistrate, in other words, when it's time for your day in court, along the way, while you're headed to that courtroom, Do everything that you can to settle with your adversary. And you get the picture of here's this guy and he's being marched towards the courthouse. And, you know, the metaphor would kind of imply he's guilty and he knows it. And his adversary has the right side of the dispute. And you get the mental picture of him on his way being taken to the magistrate, the adversary with him, pleading, what if I do this? And what if I pay you back twice as much for what I did? Or what if I pay back three times as much for what I did? Or what if I give up this? Or what if I... You can get the mental picture of a guy who knows he is guilty beyond doubt, has no question what the magistrate is going to render in terms of verdict, And Jesus is saying, lest he drag you to the judge, settle with him. Settle, settle, settle. Now, a settlement is kind of a tricky thing, right? We have lots of celebrities in our world today with lots of money. Every once in a a while, I know, hard to believe, but one of these celebrities will get caught doing something they shouldn't do. I know. These people are up on pedestals and They're the moral pillars of our society everywhere you look. But every once in a while, one of them slips a little bit. And somebody catches them doing something they shouldn't do. And undoubtedly, do these celebrities end up going to jail like the rest of us? 
Very rarely. Most of the time, they settle. (laughs) Do they end up, you know, in some awful situation with all their laundry being aired out in a civil courtroom for testimony? No, no, no. They go to the accuser who's caught them in whatever thing they're being accused of, and they say, I don't want to go to court. I don't want people testifying. I don't want court TV splashing this on cable news. I don't want to be a part of the news cycle. How much money is this going to take to settle? And why do they settle? Because they know they are guilty, even if they think they're innocent of the crime. There's enough guilty stuff that they don't want to come out in a courtroom. (laughs) They're not perfect. They have skeletons in the closet, which we all do. They have things that character witnesses could come and accuse us of, which we all have. So a settlement is kind of a tricky thing. On the one hand, whew, I don't have to stand before the judge. And on the other hand, it's an admission that this was a case that would not have gone in our favor. When Jesus says, make every effort along the way to settle, he is implying that you and I know we are sinners. And that when we stand before a righteous God, it's not going to take many testimonies for us to be found the sinners that we are. It's not going to take much evidence to be presented. Now, be assured, the books will be open and all the evidence that's there will be on file, but it won't take very long. Now, the the warning, what happens when you go to the judge? Well, the judge will deliver you to the officer. The officer will throw you into prison. In the context here, a sort of debtor's prison. And I tell you, you will not depart from there till you have paid the very last mite. Now, debtor's prison is something that's not common to us or to our world, Um, but it's not so distant in the past that we can't consider it or know what it is. Debtor's prison is a a prison, a dungeon-like experience in which people who owed great deals would work off their bondage, would work off their debt, perhaps to society, perhaps to someone else. They were not paid very well while they were working it off because they were not, you don't go to debtor's prison to do, you know, a really rare skill set. You go to debtor's prison to do the kind of jobs that only the debtor's prison people can be found to do, the kind of jobs that others are not openly applying for. And it pays little. And everyone knew that if you go to debtor's prison, you go there for a long time. I mean, if the debt is insignificant, you would never find yourself going to debtor's prison. Somebody would put it up for you. Some family member, someone would have mercy. But if the debt was significant at all, the time in debtor's prison was going to be equally significant. So the question that is begged to us in the illustration here is, how significant is your debt to God? Well, it's not a pleasant thought to consider. When we think that God is all-knowing, when we read from the testimony that the works of our lives are being recorded to be presented, if you have any self-awareness at all, you quickly realize there are mountains of files on evidence. In the context of 
what we know about judgment, the eternality of hell. It's, uh, it's rather simple to read verse 59 and know that this is an eternal damnation. Eternal. That is a... You know, there are some words in our language, I don't know if you know this, but there are some words in our language that just carry a certain kind of gravity to them. You know, a certain kind of, of weight. Eternal is one of those words. You say, the word eternal gets used in, in movies and in poems and in drama and in literature because it carries, it carries weight, eternal. Eternal hell. Eternal judgment. Eternal prison. Eternal bondage. It's a big word. Now, why would Jesus kind of summarize all that we've read through Luke 12, which is a tough chapter, which we've been through now, seventh week in Luke 12. Why would he land here? In fact, why does Jesus so often in his sermons talk about hell? Why? Why does he so often talk about judgment? I mean, can you just consider for a second all the parables, all the stories, all the metaphors that Jesus uses over and over again in all of his preaching to talk about judgment and hell? It's constant. When he's not talking about hell, he's talking about heaven in terms that imply it's extremely difficult to go. <laughs> Why? Well, I thought about that, and I thought about how I could speak to that this morning, and I didn't have to think very long. Now, this week um, at work, I lost my cool. Now, I didn't explode. I didn't yell and scream at anybody. Didn't, you know, curse or swear, throw things, but... I lost my, my cool at work this week, and I'll tell you why. I saw something being done that wasn't safe. And I have seen similar things being done in the 20 years in this workplace, and it scared me. And when I saw it being done, I thought we are one dumb mistake away from somebody losing their leg or... Or, or, or falling to their death. And for me, maybe for you, not alarming at all. For me, it was alarming because that's not the safety environment that I have spent my professional life in, and I lost my cool. And the reason I lost my cool was not because I didn't like the people around me or because I didn't want them to have a good day at work. <laughs> I was trying to be a buzzkill I lost my cool in a very earthly way for the same reason that Jesus issues all these warnings. When you have seen something terrible happen, you understand the reality of the danger more so than those who've never seen it. You know, I've said this before, uh, and you know, I've said it, even used it as an illustration in the past. You know, at my work, we there's a lot of people that drive forklifts, and you know, for me and my experience, the most dangerous time when someone's learning how to drive a forklift is not the first two, three, four weeks because they're going really slow and really careful and really cautious because they've never driven a forklift before. It, the most dangerous time is like between month two and four. 
They start to go faster. They start to feel more comfortable. And they start to be a little bit more competent. And they've never seen the bad thing happen. Jesus is familiar with eternal judgment. When he tells a story of a rich man and Lazarus, he has seen a rich man and Lazarus. (laughs) This is not make-believe. You and I think about hell, and honestly, if we're just being honest, if we're just being transparent, most of, of what we consider about heaven and hell is really beyond, you know, it, it's really beyond anything that we should be intellectually comfortable with. I mean, it's challenging to believe in the eternality of anything to a certain extent because everything we do is marked by time. I mean, the, the whiskers on a man's face mark time. The, uh, everything we do is marked by time. So just the concept in and of itself requires some intellectual gymnastics. It requires some thinking to consider and ponder. And when you think of hell being a place of eternal suffering and judgment, no redemption, no escape, no ease, no relinquishing of the torment, it sounds mythical. It sounds impossible. And if we're not careful, our actions, the way we talk, the way we think, it will just push, you know, hell to the to the realm of Valhalla or or other, you know, mythical ideas of eternity. And when Jesus comes to the earth, he speaks of this over and over and over again because it's not fiction. And he's seen it with his own eyes. And it's the reality of judgment and destruction that compelled Jesus to visit the earth in the first place to be born in the form of a man. Everyone he saw was someone to be saved from eternal damnation. Everyone he saw was a life to be escaped from the flames. This is why he preaches with passion about judgment. This is why his warnings sound so severe. This is why Luke 12 in all of the fullness of the seven weeks that we've spent there, is so challenging. Because if we can just relegate the idea of judgment off to the side, we don't need to consider what it is to be a steward with the master that's going to come home and cut people into pieces. That's a metaphor from Luke 12. Again, that's not making many appearances in Easter sermons across the world. That's there. That's how this man, Jesus, who rose from the grave, spoke. We're not talking about the fairy tale Jesus. The, you know, the really light-complected, you know, angelic figure that makes its way onto portraits. We're not talking about that. We're not talking about the cartoon Jesus. We're not talking about the television or the movie Jesus. This is how he spoke. And any rational, thoughtful reading will say, this stuff is terrifying. (laughs) It's unsettling. There's a reason why at the crucifixion of Jesus, there were about 100 followers in an upper room and that was it. There's a reason why miracles drew thousands and then they walk away in mass when he starts teaching like this and Jesus turns to Peter and what does he ask him? He he asks the 12, will you all leave also? And Peter answers, Lord, where else will we go? Who else has the words of life? 
People were not attracted to Jesus for his flowery speech. Now, there are people attracted to church services all over the world today because somebody's going to stand up and say something very poetic. And I'm not here to condemn every other church or any other church. I'm simply saying, I think it is helpful for us to recognize the real man on the cross. The real man on the cross was a man, a man's man, a real man who has seen destruction who has seen what becomes of sinners under the wrath of God, and he comes to spare, to save people from that, and his life ministry is spent warning them of that. That's a real man. A real man does not stay silent when he knows that someone is getting ready to suffer eternal condemnation. That's not our Lord. Jesus has seen what what happens to a man who does not know the danger of his own sin. And so he warns. So that's part one of this little three-part outline here, is the danger of sin. Your sin will damn you. If you don't believe that, you have no business being here on Easter Sunday morning. You have no business being here. If your sin will not damn you, If you don't face eternal judgment, then you don't need a Savior. If you're going to stand before the Almighty God and give a rational response for all the things you've done wrong so that He'll look at you and you say, well, now that you mention it, after I've weighed your good deeds in the balance, sure, come on in. Let's forget the rest. Just come on in. If that's your expectation the throne of God, you don't need a Savior. You don't need salvation. To save you from what? You've already done a good job. What foreign righteousness? Why would you need the righteousness of Jesus if your righteousness was good enough? Sin is deadly and dangerous and impossible for you and I. Impossible. It is The very essence of a no-win situation. There is only damnation apart from Jesus Christ. There is only sinners under the wrath of God apart from Jesus Christ. I want you to turn to Hebrews chapter 10 and consider now the offering of Jesus. Verses 11 through 14, we'll read Hebrews 10, 11 through 14. Just a few verses, four verses from Hebrews. I'm really uh, showing some restraint here uh, because in selecting these verses, there's always that challenge for the preacher. Where will you start and where will you end? I can tell you there's no preacher in the world worth their salt that doesn't want to start 25 verses earlier or go 10 verses further. Where do you draw the line and say, well, we don't really need to read that part. I mean, this is the Bible. Let's keep reading. But I'm going to show some restraint. Four verses Beginning in Hebrews chapter 10, verse 11. Let's consider, I think, the bare minimum we can take this morning from this passage. And every priest stands ministering daily and offering repeatedly the same sacrifices which can never take away sins. Now, consider the context. At the time the book of Hebrews is written... In the city of Jerusalem, there is still a temple. 
temple of God. Jesus has died on the cross already. Jesus has rose from the grave already. Churches have been established by the power of the Holy Spirit. Miraculously so. There are no churches established over men who were crucified, over false messiahs. Miraculously though, the author of Hebrews is writing to the Hebrew people about this Messiah, Jesus, who has been crucified. And yet, there is still a temple in Jerusalem. And there are still priests walking in and out of sanctuaries, taking sheep, goats, birds, incense, and letting blood day after day after day. Another animal, another priest, put your hand on the sacrifice, cut the animal's throat, let the blood drain day after day after day. Gruesome, bloody stuff. That's why I describe it, gruesome. We think of sacrifice, we think of Jesus. When the word sacrifice is used at the time of Jesus, when the word sacrifice is used in 100 AD, they think of animals, gory, bloody. Every priest stands ministering daily and offering repeatedly the same sacrifices which can never take away sins. What a statement. What a hopeless, what an empty, what a depressing, defeated view of the work of a priest. Every priest in the Old Testament that offered a sacrifice day after day to God, to the real God, to the one true God, was offering a sacrifice of faith that God will fulfill His promises in Christ. Whether they realized it or not, every sacrifice of a lamb was a foreshadowing of the sacrifice of the Lamb of God. But those sacrifices in and of themselves, Old Testament or New Testament times, could not magically remove a single sin. The sacrifices all before Jesus looked forward to the act of Jesus. The one act that can take away sin. And all the sacrifices after until the destruction of the temple in 70 AD. The sacrifices that happen now in the Middle East to God. Even apart from a temple. All of them. Are meaningless to deal with our sin. Verse 12. But this man. Man. This man, after he had offered one sacrifice for sins forever, sat down at the right hand of God. Praise the Lord. From that time, the time of his ascension, waiting till his enemies are made his footstool, he will return. That's what it's hinting at. For by one offering he has, and this is underlined, bolded in my outline, circled in my outline, these next three words, perfected forever those who are being sanctified. If, if the word eternal carries gravity, the word forever carries gravity and weight. I think of the movie The Sandlot because that's who I am. Forever. perfected forever those people
When you know the seriousness of some dangers, as a parent, as a leader, you try to save those whom you love from experiencing the harm that could come from those dangers. This is parenting 101. This is taking care of children 101. This is teaching, coaching. This is when you know the danger of something, you take precautions to protect those who are ignorant of the danger or who may know theoretically it exists but don't really know the danger. That's what Jesus has done for every one of us. He has done it for all of us out of love. We are those whom He loves and He has taken precautions to save us from the harm that is coming while we are being marched along the way to meet the judge. He has made possible. He has provided. He has funded the settlement with His blood. Perfected forever. What does that mean? I mean... Marty, as great a guy as he is, and Marty is a great guy. Matter of fact, um, among the men in the world, I would not have more respect or esteem for many of them than Marty. That's not hyperbole. And I would say that about a number of you who I know personally, but I know Martin personally. He is a man of character in his action, not merely in his word. Martin will sin repeatedly this week. He will disgrace the name of Christ in front of people this week. I know that because I will too. But by this one offering, Jesus has perfected forever Martin and me. Not just all the sin you committed before you came to the Lord. All sin, period, legally dealt with. I can't tell you what kind of grace that is. Here's how this is described. In the Old Testament, this is Micah 7, 19. You will cast all our sins into the depths of the sea. Psalm 103, for as the heavens are as high above the earth. Now, I like the Psalm 103 passage because it describes the finality of Jesus dealing with our sin in three different metaphors. Here's the first one. As high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is His mercy towards those who fear Him. That's metaphor one. Metaphor two. As far as the east is from the west, so far has He removed our transgressions from us. As a father, third metaphor, as a father pities his children, so the Lord pities those who fear him over and over and over again God when he deals with you when he reconciles you to his family when he makes payment for your sin makes total and complete payment a payment not even you and your future sin can compromise a payment so complete that it's described to us as being perfected forever that's amazing grace I don't know how sweet that sounds to you, but it sounds sweet to me. As high as the heavens, the next, so Tuesday, I'll give you all 24 hours. Let's assume that this sermon is so great that for the next 24 hours, not a single sin will be committed, okay? Let's just, (laughs) I wish I had that kind of power. I don't. But Tuesday, When you find yourself disgracing the name of Christ with your behavior and the Holy Spirit in God's mercy 
allows you to feel the slightest conviction of your sin. Because there's all kind of sin that we just commit and move on and never feel an ounce of guilt about. That's how hard-hearted we become. But Tuesday, when the Spirit of God shows you your sinfulness, what a hypocrite you are, what a failure you are, this is what you do. You walk outside, and you look up into the sky, and when you see where the sky ends, you say that's the limit of God's forgiveness and grace. Or you, you pull out your map, Go on the internet and pull up the maps and you scroll right over and over again towards the east until you've scrolled far enough that now you're scrolling west because it'll never happen. You can do it with north and south, by the way, sovereignty of God's word. You can scroll north until all of a sudden now you're going south. You can't do it with east and west. That's the limitation of God's forgiveness and grace in your life. When you, when you fail, you think of a perfect father who loves his children and imagine what it would take for a perfect father who loves his children, a perfect father who loves his children to cast them out of his presence forever. On what grounds does such a forgiveness exist? The righteousness of Jesus Christ. That's amazing grace. This is the offering of the cross. Third point, on the resurrection of the dead. Turn to Philippians chapter 3. Again, showing restraint. Four verses here. I'm just going to tell you, Pastor Steve doesn't show restraint when he's reading these texts. You guys, you better bring your reading glasses starting week after next. Philippians chapter 3, verse 8. Hey, brother, if there's an area of your life where you sh- you know, you're going to be known for not showing restraint, reading the Bible is pretty good. So, Philippians chapter 3, verse 8, now on the resurrection, which is why we're gathered together. Without this... We are almost pitiable, and this is all worthlessness, but on the resurrection. Philippians chapter 3, verse 8. Paul writes. Sorry, pausing because I don't want to get choked up. Yet indeed, I also count all things loss. Everything in my life I count as loss for the excellence of the knowledge of Christ Jesus, my Lord. For whom I have suffered the loss of all things and I count them as rubbish. What an incredible thing to say. This is Paul who truly had suffered the loss of all things. No bank account, no home, no place to lay his head. And he's saying, for Jesus, I have suffered the loss of all things, but I don't look at what I have lost with any ounce of regret. In fact, when I talk or when I think about what I've lost, to me, it's all garbage. 
It's all disposable. That I may gain Christ and be found in Him. Not having my own righteousness. Now this is the settlement that gets made along the road to meet the judge. This is it. This is the exchange. Paul says, I count everything as lost that I might gain Christ. Why? Because Christ foots the bill. And then here's the explanation of that. Not having a righteousness of my own. (laughs) Because that doesn't foot the bill. That righteousness meets the judge and goes to hell. Not having my own righteousness, which is from the law, which damns me from the judge, but that, that righteousness, which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness which is from God by faith, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings, being conformed to his death. If by any means, that's the underlying portion in my Bible, if by any means I may attain the resurrection from the dead. That is a powerful passage. And I feel the emotional weight of it because I'm an emotional man who's been meditating on these things now for the last 24 hours preparing to preach it to you. But that's a powerful message. If I stand before the judge with my own righteousness, it's hell. But if I may just obtain the righteousness that comes to me from God by faith, if I may know Him in the power of His resurrection, if I may know the fellowship of His sufferings, being conformed to His death, what do those things mean? The fellowship of His sufferings how is one conformed to the death of christ must i be crucified what does this speak of in a sense yes you must be crucified what does it take to be a disciple of jesus does he not tell us any man who would come after me must deny himself deny yourself self-denial is what it takes number one from the mouth of jesus Do you know what self-denial sounds like to me? It sounds like one who suffers loss, who counts their own desires as rubbish in comparison to knowing Christ. Self-denial. Any man who would come after me must deny himself, must take up his cross. In other words, there is a cost to be paid. It's not enough to simply say, well, I won't do what I want. There is a sacrifice to be made. And what does it say of this sacrifice? It describes it as daily. Any man who would come after me must deny himself and take up his cross daily, it says. Jesus just leaves no loopholes for us. And follow me. This is what Paul means when he says the fellowship of his sufferings being conformed to his death. Listen to me. If there's any evaluation for you to do today, 
and I've asked you to do it twice in the last three weeks, I'll call you back to that passage in Matthew, I believe 1624, if you want the reference. Hope I didn't get that one wrong. Are you a disciple of Jesus? Okay. Identify the self-denial that's taking place in your life right now to serve Him. Identify the wants and the desires and the passions and the ambitions that you're setting aside and saying, not my will, but yours be done. That's the challenge of Matthew 16, 24, when he's speaking to his own disciples. Are you a disciple of Jesus? After you identify the self-denial of your own will and ambition, identify the cost that you're paying in service to him. What of your life are you sacrificing, as Romans 12, 1 says? What are you laying down? What cost are you paying? We should not imagine there isn't one. Anyone who has served the Lord at any time in their life with earnestness knows it requires sacrifice. Anyone who has served the Lord passionately at any time in their life knows it requires surrender. It's not easy even to get out of bed and to march off to something. It's not easy to pick up the phone. It's not easy to reach out in fellowship. It's not easy to bend the knee and to consider the prayer requests of others. It's not easy to check in on those who are faltering, to exhort those who are struggling, to admonish those who are in sin. There's nothing easy about serving Jesus. There's nothing easy about being a disciple of Jesus. Identify the self-denial. Identify the cost. Are you following Jesus Christ? Paul says, this is his commitment, if by any means I may obtain the resurrection from the dead. There is no valley of the shadow of death that Paul is not committed to walking down if it means that he gets to live forever with Jesus Christ. If Jesus has perfected us forever dealing with our sin at the cross, then I am perfect in God's eyes like Jesus. If Jesus rose from the grave, why shouldn't I? Paul's logical argument, 1 Corinthians 15, is this, the sting of death. The power of death is sin. The strength of sin is the law. But thanks be to God, who gives us victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus has dealt with the law. So Jesus has dealt with my sin. So Jesus has dealt with my death. And if Jesus may rise from the dead because the law cannot condemn him, then so may I. This is Peter's argument in Acts 2.23 when he stands up and he preaches his sermon on the day of Pentecost. He says, him being delivered, Jesus being delivered by the determined purpose and foreknowledge of God, you, men of Israel, have taken by lawless hands, have crucified and put to death, whom God raised up, having loosed the pains of death, because it was not possible that he should be held by it. It's a logical argument. Jesus was not resurrected from the dead because God had pity on him or because God was righting a wrong. No, Jesus resurrected from the dead because death had no power to hold him. It was impossible that he should be held by it. 
The sting of death is sin. The power of sin is the law. Thanks be to Jesus Christ who has given us the victory. If Jesus can rise from the dead, so can I. Let me pause with a question for you. What's the meaning of life? Just a simple question we spend a couple minutes on. Not a big one, right? What's the meaning of life? I think the meaning of life, whatever answer a person gives, has to have three basic elements to it. Uh, and if it doesn't have three elements to it, I don't think it holds any water. Someone wants to tell me, well, the meaning of life, basketball is life. Nah, I don't think so. I don't think you're going to sell anybody on that. I don't even think you truly believe it. It just sounds good, looks good on a t-shirt. It's not real. What's the meaning of life? Any definition of the meaning of life has to include purpose, has to include achievement, has to include fellowship. Without those three things, eh, life doesn't really have meaning. Purpose, Ecclesiastes, Ecclesiastes 12, 7 through 8, and then I'll read verse 13. Let me read this to you. This is Solomon's summary of the purpose of life. He said, The dust will return to the earth as it was. The Spirit will return to God who gave it. Vanity of vanities, says the preacher. Dust to dust, ashes to ashes. Everything down here is vanity. Then verse 13, Let us hear the conclusion of the whole matter. Fear God and keep His commandments, for this is man's all. That's the purpose. According to Ecclesiastes, fear God and keep His commandments. Everything else is just vanity. God has commanded us. In fact, He has commissioned us. Matthew 28, 19 through 20. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all things that I have commanded you. And lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Amen. There's your commission. That's our commission from God. It's for the time that we live in. It's between the resurrection of Jesus and the return of Jesus. That will not be our commission once Jesus returns. But you and I, by God's sovereignty, live right now. That's our commission. Go, make disciples of Jesus. That's what Jesus did. Baptize them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. Teach them to observe what I've commanded you. If you're looking for purpose in life, let me direct you to Matthew 28, 19 through 20. You could say, well, I don't really want that purpose. I would have rather been born in the Old Testament and God could have given me the purpose of going and fighting the Philistines. Okay, you can take that up with God. But your king has given you a commission. If you don't like it, you can take it up with your king, but this is the commission. I think you need to look no further for your purpose in life than this commission. Teaching them to observe all things that I've commanded you. There's a lot of instruction in God's Word. We're supposed to make disciples, baptize them, teach them to follow Jesus Christ. Achievement. That's purpose. Achievement in life. All right? Revelation 21, 6 through 7. He said to me, it is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. I will give of the fountain of the water of life freely to him who thirsts. He who overcomes shall inherit all things, and I will be his God, and he shall be my son. That sounds like achievement to me. 
If you want two verses in a nutshell, what's the purpose of life? Well, I've got the purpose. What do I stand to achieve? Here it is. He who overcomes shall inherit all things. That's pretty big. That's pretty big. I don't know what I'm going to inherit from my mom and dad. It will not compare to that. How? On what grounds will we inherit all things? Well, the description is right there in the verse in Revelation chapter 21. So here it is. I will be his God and he shall be my servant. No, no, no. That's not what it said. Did you catch it? I know you didn't turn there, but did you listen? I will be his God. He will be my eternal steward. It's not what it said. Uh-uh. No, stewards don't inherit anything. He who overcomes shall inherit all things. I will be his God and he shall be my son. Okay. <laughs> my interest is piqued. All right. I get to be son of almighty God. I get to live with him. Okay, purpose, achievement, then fellowship. You know, there are a lot of people who live their lives with earthly purpose and accomplish a lot of human things and die alone. Even in earthly terms, that seems like a meaningless existence to me. Do you know, the, the, what, I should ask, what year did the Dolphins win all the games, Linda? Is it 70-something? What was it? Thank you, Linda. Resident Dolphins fans, just right off the tip of her tongue. The 72 Dolphins. You know, I don't know if they still do this, but for years it was an annual thing in the news. They'd all get together and celebrate when the last win or lossless NFL team finally lost a game because their record stood intact. And you can say, well, that's kind of silly, you know. But what is the point of achieving something if there's no fellowship in it? <laughs> if you've got no one to celebrate it with. What's the point? What's the point of scoring 50 points in the championship basketball game, right? And the moment the buzzer goes off and you've won the game, your teammates all turn and walk away and leave you hanging in the dust because they couldn't stand you. You Zero fellowship. What's the point? Well, life's got to have purpose. It's got to have achievement. It's got to have fellowship. Boy, do, do we have the ultimate reward of fellowship here. Now, I'm not talking about this. This is foreshadowing what's to come, but listen to this. This is 1 Thessalonians 4, 13 through 18. Now, li listen. But I do not want you to be ignorant, brethren, concerning those who have fallen asleep, lest you sorrow as those who have no hope. For if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so... God will bring with him those who sleep in Jesus. For this we say to you by the word of the Lord, that we who are alive and remain until the coming of the Lord will by no means precede those who are asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of an archangel, and with the trumpet of God. And the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive and remain will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. Here's my underlined circle passage right here. And thus we shall always be with the Lord. Comfort one another with these words.
Thus, I get to always be with the Lord. But that's not what the verse says. The word is we. The same word in Greek for us. It's why we are to comfort one another with these words. The fellowship is not merely I get to personally be with Jesus. It's I get to personally be with you, with Jesus. I think about that as I look at this photo right here. I want to look at the back row. I think about that. What is the purpose of life? You're not going to find it in some machine, in some project, out in the back of some woods, sitting on some boat, looking at some ocean, watching your kids play some sport. You're not going to find it. As hard as it is to reconcile this, every bit of all of that is dust to dust and ashes to ashes. There'll be no achievement in any of it. There will certainly be no fellowship in any of it beyond the grave. And 72 was a while ago at this point in time. Not all those guys are left. Go another couple decades in the future and see if any of them have any fellowship in any of it. And they won't. Somewhere, they'll be the last lonely guy. Somewhere, they'll be the last one who's sitting on his couch watching the television on a Sunday when the last undefeated team loses and realizes there's not a soul left to celebrate with. This is real purpose. Find it here. Let's close with a word of prayer. Father, you have done for us the greatest thing that anyone could ever do for another person. You have saved us from death, but taken it to another level by granting us eternal life. We have no need to fear. Not even death can hold us. There is no judgment of the world, no suffering that's anything more than temporary. By faith, we have the righteousness of your son, Jesus Christ, who has defeated death, who has rescued the perishing, and who has ascended into heaven, sits at your right hand, who will return to earth and rule with a rod of iron. Father, we look forward to this day. We thank you for the great patience that you've shown in delaying the return of Christ, that those who are perishing might hear this message and be saved. Help us to find our commission Help us to meet this commission with valor, with courage, with fearlessness. Give us strength to be real men and real women. Help us to honor you, to bring glory to your name. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.